Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Wishbone Ash and Blowing Free from their classic album Argos. And that's because I've got founding member of Wishbone Ash, Martin Turner here, bass guitarist, lead vocalist and songwriter to talk about his time in music. So let's hear my chat with Martin. Hello. I can hear and see you. That's good. Hello, Martin. That's Jason, is it? It is Jason, yeah. How are you doing, Jason? I'm very good. Uh, really busy period from you because I'm, I'm aware that you're currently touring, mm-hmm. which we'll come to. But um, also, we're just about to release the 50th anniversary box set of, of Argos. Right. 
I've got quite a few of the Madfish box sets of, of various groups and the attention to detail and the the extras and everything that they, they always put into it are always magnificent. And looking at what is planned for the Argos box set, it does look like another special set. Yeah, I mean, they're, um, they're a really good company. What can I say? Everything they've done so far has been really good, except one thing. <laughs> but they, they just uh they just left um a credit off i i mixed i mixed an album called uh it was live in portsmouth i think 1980 and i really put some work in on it and did a great job of mixing it and they managed to leave my name off the credits for mixing and production but I, I mean, I know why that happened because the the, the main guy who was coordinating the project w- was moving house that you know around that time, and he was like totally preoccupied. So I forgive him. <laughs> <laughs> A great time, given it's the fiftieth as well. Yep. One of the key tracks from that period, and I think is. Um... Is in that box set is a replica seven inches blowing free and uh uh-huh. that song in particular in terms of your catalogue and, and wishbone ashes particularly anthemic was it clear that it would be a good fit for argus i i had the idea for that song back in the 1960s oh and it's about a swedish girl that i met we were the most unlikely you know she came to my town she was at college and it was on a on a university exchange arrangement so they came to Torquay which is where I was living and to us little English guys they were so mysterious I mean these beautiful Swedish girls with blonde hair beautiful teeth and skin and everything quite mysterious and we played a gig uh, which was organized and a lot of them were there yeah I became friendly with her her father was a university professor or something and she rode horses and played tennis. She was what you would call a posh bird. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, I was a little rock and roll rat, <laughs> diving in and out of clubs late at night. So we became friendly, and I can remember spending an afternoon on Dartmoor. I took her up onto Dartmoor in the band's van. And I remember we it was very hard to communicate. We were really restricted in terms of language. But we were watching a thunderstorm roll through the valley down be- below us. And it was a, a fantastic atmosphere. But I remember saying to her, you know, this, this is going to sound a bit incredible, but I remember saying to her, do you mind if I kiss you? Right. <laughs> and she said, she said, you can try. <laughs> Which I put in the song, actually. She told me you can try. Yeah, the it was like teenage love, very naive, mm. you know, very naive. We were both very young, and that's what the song was about. It never really went anywhere. She went back home, and and I've not seen her since, pretty much. But um, I wanted the song to be full of that energy, which is teenage love. I wanted it to be anthemic, you know, uh, uh, an anthem. And we tried, when Wishbone got going, we tried recording it a couple of times and it was so limp. I'm like, guys, come on, you know, this is, this is, this is got to be, you know, trying to get across to them what it was about, what the energy level needed to be and all the rest of it. And it just, 
it just sounded limp. So it was left on the shelf. I think that was around the time of the Pilgrimage album, the second album. And then when we were recording all the Argus tunes, which had spent nine months of my life writing, wow. like having a baby, I said to them on the sessions, okay, uh, today, guys, we're going to have another go at blowing free. You know, and they were like, really? <laughs> it's like pulling teeth. So I'm like, yeah, we're going to have another go at it, see if we can knock it into shape. And this time it's going to sound great, okay? Now, when you listen to the recording, you can hear that the bass is absolutely pushing it along like an engine and it's saying, you will work this time. You know, to me, when I listen to it, it's so pushy. Well, we recorded it and I came into the control room and had a listen and I'm like, wow, that is sounding really good. I mean, obviously there were no vocals or anything on there yet. Um, there may have been a rough one, but... You know, they were actually playing it with some gusto, with, with some energy. And I'm like, yes, this is going to work. So next day in the studio, I bump into Derek Lawrence, the producer. He was coming in as I was walking out of the control room. I was like, oh, Mark, um, have you got a minute? I'm like, yeah, what do, you, what do you need? And he said, can we have a word? I'm like, yeah. So we went and sat down. He said, look. I've had a chat with the lads and um, all the songs we've recorded so far for this album are kind of quite serious. I said, yeah, you could say that. He said, but this blowing free tune is quite fluffy, it's quite poppy. And, you know, the feeling is that maybe it belongs on, on another album, at which point I went psychotic on him. <laughs> I was like, no fucking way, you know. <laughs> Listen, it needs to be on there precisely because all the other material is so serious. You know, you've got to have a bit of light relief. You know, we need to relax and have a bit of fun, let our hair down. And, and I was like absolutely adamant. There was no way this album was going out without blowing free. And I'll give him his due. He could see the intensity and the passion with which I conveyed my feelings about it. And he was like, okay, fair enough, you know, blah, blah. Now, I, I don't know who was driving that, but I've got my suspicions because from day one, Andy Powell had a bit of a bee in his bonnet about that song yeah. because he said to me, Mark, you've absolutely got to sort the lyric out on this tune. I'm like, really? What, what do you mean? And he said, I thought I had a girl... I know because I've seen her. That's not proper English. It's like you've got to say it in proper English. It just sounds uneducated. And I laughed. I said, Andy, I can sing whatever the fuck I want. You know, it doesn't matter. It's it's the sentiment and the the passion and uh, the, the whole thing is based around not the bloody language, for God's sakes. I mean, I, you know, I think he was just a bit embarrassed to think that people would think we were stupid for using language which wasn't proper. <laughs> me? I couldn't give a crap, you know. And in fact, Steve Upton did say to me one day, he said, yeah, well, the problem with you, Mark, is you're the kind of guy that if you 
took a crap on the stage, you would call it art. I said, yeah, you got it, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I've ever done that. You know, I'll leave that to the likes of Jim Morrison. (laughs) So, yeah, that song was a bit of a problem. And then I think the record company were very slow to recognise it as, you know, that it had singles potential. So it wasn't released initially as a single. And then... What happens next, the BBC phoned us up and said, we would like you to do Top of the Pops next week. Yeah. And we were like, oh, hang on, let's just look in the diary. Oh, sorry, yeah, we're, we're doing a gig in Belgium that day. Now, every other band in the country would have cancelled the gig and done Top of the Pops and sold 10,000 records the next week and, and probably got maybe repeated and even another hit record. Now, Wishbone Ash never had a hit single. You know, we we were really an album band, probably because we were a little bit iffy, or I was certainly about Top of the Pops. To me, it smacked of, it had this slightly prurient thing about it where there were lots of like girlies wiggling their tushies in the camera. And I thought, yeah, this is this is like, for businessmen, when they, they just arrived home from work and they sit down in front of the TV and their missus brings their dinner on a tray and they're sat there watching these girls on the screen. You know, I, I, to me, it was like off. I didn't like it. You know, I, I was ready to stay with Old Grey Whistle Test. And, and do you remember a program called Ready, Steady, Go at all? Oh, yeah, yeah, from the 60s. In the 60s. Mm. Great show, that, that was. And, of course, when news of Jimmy Savile broke, yeah. I'm like, wow. Mm. <laughs> the mix of material that you've got on, on Argus that you've blown free, mm. compared to material like Time Was, you've really got a nice balance of lyrical themes as well as the music. Well, all, all the themes on that album, I mean, I certainly... That's the one album that I did the bulk of the writing on. I mean, Ted yeah. Ted wrote the beginning part of Time Was, which is beautiful. Mm. And and I remember saying to him, hey, you know, this is the same sentiment as one of my tunes. We, we Maybe we could get them to flow into each other, which is what we did. Steve uh, was very much the man on Leaf and Stream, which when I read the lyric, because I had to sing it, I read the lyric and I thought, I recognize this. I said, well, wait a minute, Steve. This is pretty much what I wrote for the song on the, it was either the first album or the second album, I can't remember, which was called Alone. Mm. We ended up pruning it down so that the vocal disappeared and we just used the guitar bits. But it was very similar. You know, sitting beside a river or a stream, contemplating your navel and life generally. When I compared the lyrics, what I'd written back a couple of years earlier, I have to admit was absolute crap compared with what Steve Upton had written, where he'd reworked the idea and put a lot of time and caring on it. And it it was beautiful the way he put it together. So, you know, all credit to him, really. He He was very good. So, yeah, other than that, all the songs on there, like Time Was... I always, from day one, had this strange relationship with time. Mm. I almost didn't like the fact that I was confined by the time and space continuum, I suppose, which I now in my old age, I believe 
I'm not, you know, it's just where you are in space that dictates time. Mm. You know, when we're looking at a planet that's thousands of miles away, we're seeing it as, it, as it was thousands of years ago, not as it is now. So it's purely where you are in space. So, yeah, time was.
sometime world, which also mentions time, that's me trying to explore the concept of reincarnation. Right. Believe it or not. <laughs> it, it is. That's what I was trying to take a look at. But it's not maybe that obvious from the lyric, but that's what I was looking up. You know, if you made a real mess of your life, then, you know, you you may, it's kind of saying, you know, give me another life and I'll try and get it right next time. <laughs> Something like that. That's what I would think I had in my head. Now, with the warrior, that was something that had bothered me for years. And I, I spent ages thinking, why is it that since the beginning of time, there are these people, warmongers, you know, despots, right. dictators that manage to manipulate the energy of young men mm. to make war. It happens over and over and over again. It's an abomination. It's horrendous. You know, these guys at that age in their life should be out there enjoying themselves. There is an aspect of warmongering where you've got like courage and bravery and mastery of great skill and all the rest of it, which is a little bit more noble. But when I'd written the song, I didn't want it going out in case anyone mistook what I was saying for kind of like, yeah, I want to make, I want to see war. I want to make war. Mm. So being a Libran as I am, I figured, ah, what we need here is some balance. So if I write another song that kind of goes with this first one, which instead of being a song of war is now a song of peace, then maybe it will be balanced. That's what I did. In fact, when I was a boy, my mother put me in the church choir. Yeah. I mean, I was already bombarded by classical music with my dad. I used to love sitting and we used to listen to hours and hours of classical music. I love piano concertos. But she put me in a choir and I really, really loved singing. I mean, I must have been seven, I think, when I started out. And it was a great training for years later. You know, little did I know what I was going to become. But um, I rose to the giddy heights of head choir boy. And that song, Throw It Under the Sword, really does remind me of, of a hymn. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, it's actually actually quite similar. And I, those two songs, they go together like, you know, a hand in a glove, really. They, they really fit together beautifully. So, you know, there you go. The Leaf and Stream is a, a very light, gentle, astral song that conjures up visions of nature. And it's, it's beautiful. So there's a, there's a lot of classic themes, really, mm. that are examined uh, during the course of that album. Quite big issues. Okay, you know, Blowing Free is fluffy because it, all, all that's about is teenage love. Mm. But um, to be honest with you, nothing in, in music, certainly rock music, nothing is absolutely entirely original. You always influenced, borrow ideas from other people. Blowing Free for me, I, there was an old anthem by Steve Miller back in the 60s called Children of the Future, yeah, which had that 6-8 shuffle time 
Steve Miller, we are children of the future, wandering in this world where we are going to. And it had this ba-ding, 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 ba-ding kind of lilt to it. And I was trying to explain it to Ted and Andy, how the guitar went, uh, and they ended up concocting the beginning part of Blowing Free because it was trying to play what I was singing to them. <laughs> it was so cack-handed how it came about. And, you know, that song is probably, you know, the closest thing to a hit single that Wishbone ever had, except in the New Orleans area where a couple of radio stations played a song off of Wishbone 4, which was No Easy Road. I don't know if you know that one. All right, yeah. But that got played to death in that area on a couple of radio stations, and, and it was a big hit down there. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the harmony guitar thing as well. Yeah. There was a band around that when we did the initial auditions, what, what had happened in the 60s, Steve Upton and myself and my little brother Glenn were a three-piece band we were down in the West Country and we were called the, the, the MC Vessels. And um, my brother, when we got to London, it was really tough going. You know, the first six months we were having to resort to stealing food to stay alive, you know. Um, oh, gosh. It was, we, we couldn't get arrested with gigs or anything. So he left and got a job, Carnaby Street, and um, he had a girlfriend and, you know, he was earning money. So we were left with no option but to start advertising, which we did in Melody Maker. We auditioned every available guitar player and rejected them all <laughs> as a replacement for my brother Glenn. So then we had, it was like, well, what do we do now? You know, okay, clearly we have to think again. Mm. So we thought about, well, maybe it would work with one of these guys if we got someone else in. Keyboard player, maybe? Nah. How about another guitar player, but he has to play in harmony with the other guy? A bit like a band we were listening to at the time, which a friend of ours, one of the few guys we knew in London, who was an engineer at Avvision, was recording a band called The Blossom Toes. Oh, Jim Cregan's group. Jim Cregan's band, mm. managed by George Ogomelsky. I mean, other bands had done it. The Fleetwood Mac with Danny Kerwin. They'd done some, you know, little interesting things in that direction. Blossom Toes took it a little bit further. But when we tried it, we decided, yeah, let's go for that. Two guitar players. We invited Andy and Ted to come back for another audition, and it was obvious it was going to work. What we found was I was very good at concocting melodies, singing melodies, which I think are kind of tend to be a bit what I would call pseudo-classical. They sound pretty good sung, but when you transpose them onto a guitar, those melodies really start to take off you know yeah. you put some bends in you rock and roll them up and then you do the same with the other guitar player sing the harmony and it's not the easiest thing to do it's a it's a bit of a, a chore but it gave us an identity what you would now call a signature sound yeah the minute you heard those guitars you knew which band it was so you know that was that was a really good calling card
It really was. It worked a treat. Some of that early Wishbone Ash material back from the debut album has got a really nice simplicity to it, like Lady Whiskey. It does. That's a true story, isn't it, the lyrics from that? It is. Well, this guy that I mentioned a minute ago, the engineer, Phil Dunn, his name was, uh, he was an engineer at Advision. He was like, have you guys moved to London? We're like, yeah. You know, we got all our stuff in the van outside there. And he said, oh, my God, we've got to try and get you somewhere to live, you know. Let's see if they've got a room available in his building there. So he spoke to the landlord, yeah, big room, you know, so the three of us camped out in this big room. That guy, the landlord, he ran a kind of working men's club. Right. It was either in Camden Town or Kentish Town, one or the other. He was an Irishman. The whole family were Irish, and they used to go down there particularly on the weekends, and they'd come back drunk every time, come back drunk. Now, the landlady had put the electric meter back after collecting the money out of it, right, skew with, so it wasn't in the slot. She padlocked it, but all you had to do was, like, bend it to the side, and all the money fell out. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, we'd been reusing the coins, intending to pay it back. When she came in, and grabbed it, and like, oh, my mother of Mary, oh, I've been robbed, I've been robbed. And she went off, called the old man. So we knew when he came home there was going to be trouble because he was a bull of a man. I mean, neck thicker than his head, you know, like bright red, ginger hair coming out of everywhere. He'd rip you to pieces, you know. He was, he was an animal. So sure enough, he came home that night bashing on the door because he had a bone to pick with me. I was actually asleep in bed <laughs> with my girlfriend, and I leapt out of bed. I stood there naked, kind of shaking, and I thought, okay, we got to jump out the window and leg it naked. Oh, my God. Or if he comes through that door, which was looking like he was going to, then, you know, I'll have to grab a kitchen knife and fill it in, you know, before he kills us. <laughs> It was bad. But just as this was going through my mind, his wife and daughter came up the stairs screaming their heads off, you know, like crazy. And they dragged him away downstairs into the dungeon like some kind of crazy monster. And then I knew that we had to get the hell out of there, and we did, pronto. That man knocked his wife through the front door. One weekend, she fell down the steps, there were only two or three, and landed on the pavement. I saw the blood the next morning. He went off to bed, and I heard him on the phone the next morning calling around the hospitals trying to find where his wife was. That's what we're talking about. Gosh. Yeah, it was pretty ugly, and we, we got the hell out of there quick. And that's what the song was about. <laughs>
You were discussing Argus before, but given the success that you had, mm. what was the feeling with you and the group, what you would do in terms of following it up? Manager, Mars Copeland, our agent, John Sherry, the record company, MCA Universal, everybody wanted Argus 2, <laughs> son of Argus. <laughs> At that point, it became like a a monkey on our backs, mm. boulder that you were carrying, you know, um, and and we kind of overreacted in a sense. We kind of, the last thing we wanted to do was try and make another Argus because we we couldn't. And we'd done it. That was the story, really. And and in fact, what we did was we we went off to a house in Wales and and set about creating Wishbone 4. Plus, it was a radically different team. You know, we, we'd been, up until that point, we'd done three albums with Martin Birch Engineering and with Derek Lawrence as producer. They were all recorded at Delaney or CTS, as it became known. Mm. So it was, it was very, very much the same every time. And and that was also a part of it. We, we wanted to try something different, something uh, uh, that would refresh us rather than being stuck in the same rut for want of a better expression. And so we we went to Olympic Studios, which was a famous recording setup, and a lot of people had recorded there, people who admired like the Stones, for instance. And we were working with a completely different engineer, a guy that Keith Harwood, who, who we'd never met prior to that. And the results weren't great, to be honest. Um Derek had always been very careful about getting the albums mastered correctly. We were not up to speed with that at all. Keith Harwood, he just kind of finished the album and let it go. And so there was very poor control over it, really. And it sounded really a bit tin pot. I mean, it sounded great in the studio when we were recording it. When it came out on the record, we couldn't believe how small and mid-rangey it sounded and how it kind of lacked fidelity you know that we were so used to but these things happen there's still some great material on that and not afraid to cover a wide range of topics like doctor because again that's a true story but that was related yep. was it someone you knew it was a a lovely slinky long young lady that we met my brother bumped into her and then i got to know her as well she used to come on gigs with us. She had been a model in London and, and quite successful, you know, on the front page of glossy magazines and all the rest of it. Right. She had a, a bit of a wishy look about her, but, you know, she she was pretty impressive. And um, she had been sent to Torquay. Uh, when I tell the story on stage, I call it our sleepy little seaside town to recover from this mad life that she'd been leading, wherein she had acquired a class A drug habit. She was a heroin addict. And um, she was on methadone, on a methadone program. And she got my brother into methadone, or methadrine, as it was called in those days. But it's the same shit. And then um, one afternoon, we're driving off to a gig. This is in the West Country. We're going up to Balanstable or somewhere. And we're driving along. I'm driving. Glenn's riding shotgun in the chair over there. And she's in the middle, sitting on the engine. 
<laughs> or, or, or the the top of it, you know, the, the cowl. And um, what did I do? I yawned. Yeah, I yawned. And she says to me, are you tired, baby? I'm like, uh, yeah, I am a bit, you know. So all of a sudden, I feel like she's got a bloody syringe, a works. She slams it through my jeans, oh. starts banging me up with amphetamine. With methadone, you know, in my, injecting it into my leg. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, and then shit, I'm realized I'm driving a vehicle, you know, and to get back on that. Um, but yeah, she was, she was a hooligan, but we loved her. But as I say on stage, she did over the period of the following two or three years, she taught us. My, my brother and I, all we needed to know about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> he became, it, it got bad for him. I mean, he, he he quit in the 60s, and then he stayed away from it for years and years. He married and happy, and then his marriage went pear-shaped straight back there, you know, uh, and a couple of times since. And... um even until he was in his 60s, he was still going back there on occasion. And, you know, you, you'd always know when you call him up and, you know, you're speaking to a zombie, you know. <laughs> yeah, okay, Martin. Mm. You know, and then I speak to him now and he's he's like a different man. I've got my brother back. He, he's really together now.
you mentioned about the sound of Wishbone 4, so quite a departure with There's the Rub. Were you clear that you wanted a different production, different sound with uh-huh. There's the Rub? It was a bit of a fluke, really, that, because uh, Bill Simzik, who is a well-known American producer, mainly for his work with the Eagles and Joe Walsh. Yeah. And um, at that point, he was very intrigued by what the guitar sounds that were coming out of England in bands like The Who, right? Uh, for instance. Uh, and we were on the list. He contacted The Who to see if they would be interested in making a record. And they said, no, you know, we, we, we're not recording at the moment. So then he came to us, Wishbone Ash. He couldn't believe how we record guitars, you know, the amount of time we put into it, how we would do eight bars with one guitar and one amp and then switch to a different guitar and a different amp. I mean, like, just really put a lot of energy and emphasis into capturing all these guitars, which after we had worked with him, I recognized the minute, the first time I heard Hotel California, mm. he's doing that all the way through, you know, which is a tricky learn from us. But, you know, I learned a lot from him as well. He's a great producer. The two records that he made with Joe Walsh that were huge hit, the Rocky Mountain Way and then Life's Been Good, which Bill actually sings on. You know, Everybody say, oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, Um <laughs> It's brilliant to hear him singing because he can't sing, but uh, he was great on that. And uh, he's a lovely man, wonderful man. And and we learned a lot recording with him. We actually, we agreed to do that album when Ted was still in the band. Oh. And then when we rolled up in Miami with a different guitar player, he was like, oh, my God, what is this? You know, he wasn't quite ready for that. And we should have told him, really, before we got out there. Mm. But it was fine. You know, we got over it. You know, having a recording with Laurie, you know, it was very, very experimental and new. It was like, you you know, we're trying to kind of bed down with this different lineup and with different skills and mm. different songs. And we're recording in America for the very first time. So it was a real jump in the deep end, that album. But I felt it, it was it was good. It's been said that Persephone was about Ted leaving. Is that correct? Kind of. For me, it is, personally. I mean, you know, to anyone else, it probably wouldn't be. You know, I'm talking about in the band or yeah. outside of the band. You know, from my creative angle on it, that's how I saw it. You know, even though it's talking about someone that you would imagine is female. Yeah. You know, because Persephone is is a Greek is part of Greek mythology, yeah. which we've we've gone back to time and time again. It seems um, Argos, so the town, is in Greece. So for me, I, you know, when when I was singing it, I I always thought of it in in those terms of Ted leaving the band and fanning about for years with his. He was such a talented guy. Um, he could have been a great guitar player up with Jimi Hendrix and Jeff Beck and you name it. The only guy I have ever heard play a guitar like in similar to Ted would be Joe Bonamassa. All right, yeah. Who I had the pleasure of meeting a couple of times and a great guy. Um, yeah. Ted, 
you know, he's, I, I don't want to be critical of him because he's a lovely guy. And I know he had a lot of trouble with ladies over the years. And finally, he found his love, you know, who's a beautiful girl. Um, she's absolutely lovely. Um, they fit together so beautifully. They look like male and female version of the same person almost, you know. Maybe that's enough. You know, they they sing and play and, and they're creative together. So best of luck to them. Yeah, it was a great disappointment for me when he left the band. And, and I guess I got it off my chest in that song.
Lady J from that era. Yep. I've read that that's related to a gravestone that you saw. Yes, it's, it's a, an old West Country legend whereby a young lady, I think she must have been a peasant girl or something, she had become pregnant by the sort of lord of the manor's son. I, I don't know the fine details, but whether she committed suicide, I suspect that may have been what happened because she had been buried beside the road on Dartmoor. Don't ask me where, because I did go there once and I saw the grave, but it's in the middle of nowhere. It's not easy to find. And it's only a little mound beside the road. But her lover, the guy, put flowers on the grave because he was so busted up that she was gone. She lost her life. And he put. He used to go there every day with flowers, every single day. And when he died, flowers allegedly continued to appear every day. Now, who knows? Maybe it's, you know, if you look at it cynically, you can say, well, that's related to some kind of tourist industry. You know, it helps to make the place interesting, you know, and bring people there. I don't know, but I, I was intrigued by the legend and wrote a song about it, as we do. <laughs> Discussing uh, Ted leaving and then and then obviously Laurie joined. Mm. What do you think he brought to the group and how did that compare with Ted? Um, radically different, the pair of them. Right. Yeah. Ted was very much a bluesy man. He's got an amazing intensity in his play, an emotional intensity. And every now and again, he could come up with a little pattern of notes that would just send a tingle up your spine, you know, exceptional guitar player. But when he left the band, I mentioned New Orleans earlier, where where um, the fourth album, the uh, No Easy Road, had been a hit. Yeah. And when we played New Orleans, fantastic gig, great crowd. And I, I remember being in the dressing room afterwards and I saw this girl walk in towards me, and I thought, wow, she looks amazing. And she came up to me and she said, hi, Martin, my name is Anastasia Savage. <laughs> I, wow, what a name, you know. And I'm like, okay, hi, you know, I'm Martin. She, yeah, I know. Um, listen, I'm a poet. I write poetry. And when when I listen to your album... And when I saw the spaceship on the back cover, I just knew, Martin, that you and I are on the same wavelength. Really? I said to her, listen, I need to go for a sprinkle, you know, because <laughs> that's what we do when we've been on stage. Um, so back in a while, bye. And um, <laughs> I came back five or ten minutes later, and I see her. She's worked her way around the table to Ted. <laughs> and she's talking to Ted. And Ted's gazing up at her like, I'm just a little boy lost who needs a mama. <laughs> and the pair of them became an item. And I think she may have had a little bit to do with him leaving the band. I mean, to give him his due... He was the youngest in the band. We had been playing now for three or four years on this ever-increasingly intense 
roller coaster of a it, you, you felt like one of those little rodents on a wheel running you know mm. you never got a chance for a holiday or a break or a day off it was just like okay you guys got to do this now you guys are on tour you guys are doing a tv show you guys are doing a tour of japan you go in here you go in. and it was relentless and all we needed was like three weeks a month off to recharge batteries, just lay there and not have to kind of be somewhere in 10 minutes, you know. And Ted used to sweat profusely. He was constantly dehydrated. Um, I mean, he was chucking it down his neck, but it was alcohol, basically. And, um, you know, what he needed was water. Well, he drank water as well, of course. But, I mean, he, it was tough for him. It was grueling. And... He was the first one to break, really. It was like, right, i got to stop. And he had gotten totally into Stevie Wonder, which is great music. And, yeah, it's a million miles from what we do, and we admire it too, but it kind of pulled him away. And he, he wanted to do something more worthy in his own eyes, and he left the band. And um, he's not. I wouldn't criticize him for what he's done since. But I think he could have done so much more. Laurie couldn't have been more different. Laurie was a gifted musician, technically brilliant, and it completely changed the dynamics in the band. I mean, previously in the original band, you, you've got Andy Powell is the slick, speedy guy, and Ted's the slow blues man, the feel merchant, if you like. And then when Laurie joined us, it really knocked Andy sideways for a while because he was no longer the speedy Gonzalez slick guitar player. I mean, I, I can remember putting my arm around him once because I could see he was really intimidated by Laurie and, and how brilliant Laurie was technically. And I, I can remember saying to Andy, listen, don't be like thrown by this little flash guy, okay? Just keep doing what you do because you're cool. And he, he got it together, Andy. Um, but it, it was a different band. You take one guy out and put a new guy in, it's a different band.
I've also wanted to touch on some of your solo material, like Written in the Stars. Right. Listening to that fantastic album, would you see it as more as a themed album rather than a, what many would badge a concept? Yeah, kind of. I mean, um, the theme, the, the, the lick, Written in the Stars, sums up my existence, you know, because I kind of actively tried to not become a musician. Uh, and when I did, I, I tried to get out of it and escape and do something a bit more sensible. You know, not that I agree with that concept. Fate always contrives to bring me back to what I'm supposed to be doing, which is music. So eventually, when the penny dropped and I realized it and started to take a little bit more notice of my instincts, you know, then... I realized that this is my life. It was written in the stars. And um, that lick works on on a variety of levels, really. You could apply that lick to the world in which we live or anything in the universe. It's quite a big statement. But um, I did write a song that came to me in, in a flash, with the lyric for that tune, Written in the Stars, right. uh, which I always know... Is a good sign. And I literally writing it down so quickly that I kind of didn't have time to look at what I was saying, you know. A couple of people have said to me, you know, what you're actually doing there is you channeling cosmic energy. You're just making yourself the conduit for something that needs to be said. Interesting concept. And I, I quite like that. You know, I'm honoured. <laughs> that that works. If it does, you know, it's great. So And it stops me getting too full of myself, if you know what I mean. It's not me creating this, you know, it's just coming through me.
A few years ago, you uh, you did a, a new version of Everybody Needs a Friend, a tribute to someone in you who passed away. Yeah. You do that in a live setting now. How, how is it revisiting that material? And I, am I right that it's also important that it also comes from your voice, given it was you who led or was a leading force in Wishbone Ash? Yeah. I mean, as I said to you earlier, Jason, I've been a singer since I was seven years old. Mm. I really encouraged... Andy Powell to sing. He was a bit reluctant um, at first, but his voice and mine used to sound pretty good together. Yeah, I'm not so crazy mad about him singing on his own. I don't know. He, his voice can kind of get on your nerves a bit, but I don't know. That's a whole other subject. Mm. I've always encouraged them, Ted as well. And Ted had a, a lovely voice. But they, I think these guys, they and Laurie too, but they always saw themselves as guitar players. Yeah. You know, that was the main thing that they wanted to do. I'm not happy with the endless guitar solos at all. I want to hear melody, which is why I insist on singing them the melody to play. Uh, and I want to hear songs. The root to that song, Everybody Needs a Friend, is a classical influence there, isn't it? Yes, to tell the honest truth, I was trying to play, what was it? The second movement of Ravel's G major piano concerto. Right. Down, 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 down. Yeah, I mean, it goes on and on. I, I kind of took a little bit of the chord structure from it. And I thought, oh boy, this is really complicated. I didn't realize it was going to be this complicated. And I just had a few chords and a bit of a progression. And, and it was like, you know, I'm not going to get involved anymore in this. This is more than enough. Uh, and I just played it for a while because it was different. It was interesting. And I, and I loved that piece of music. And then I had a lyric. And I tried the lyric, and it fitted beautifully. And that was a lyric I had written for my first wife, who was very young when her mother died. And she did not have a great relationship with her father. She lost her best friend, basically. And I was kind of at my wits end as to how I could possibly try and help her and support her through a really dark moment, dark time. And it was very difficult to do because obviously the only thing that is going to um, help you deal with grief is that old four-letter word, isn't it? Time. Mm. Time is the only thing that is going to make the passage of time allows the grief to fade. But yeah, you know, being a creative musician as I was, I thought, oh, I know what, I'll write a song about it. And I had the lyric, 
consequently. And when I tried it with that piece of music, it fitted beautifully and it, it just came together wonderfully. I mean, it's a bit re repetitious. You know, I never felt that I actually finished writing it. But a couple of people who heard it said it was beautiful. And I said, well, it is actually my second movement of Ravel's G major piano concerto. And I said, really? Yeah. I said, yeah, I'll play it to you. You know, I'll play it to him. I wouldn't know. You could, you would never know that. Um, you wouldn't recognize that. It sounds completely different. Probably because instead of pianos, it was guitars, you know. I mean, who knows? But it's, um, it's a very, a very sentimental song. But that can get into the realms of cringe factor. But I don't think it is that way. I, I think it's it's sincere in its sentiment. And for that reason, a lot of people have told me, you know, they they played it at a funeral or, mm. you know, it, it's helped them when, when they've been at a bad moment with losing someone or whatever. So it, it does have a kind of power to it.
in the middle of a, a long tour which and, and this date stretching up to the back end of the year so part of this is commemorating the the live dates lp from 50 years ago yes we're basically performing live dates one as it later became known once live dates two arrived and it was always been known as live dates one yeah and that first live dates album that was pretty successful you know it was a double album i think it was recorded on the rolling stones mobile it was a big album. The cover, designed by Hypnosis, Storm Thorgerson, sadly no longer with us, and Aubrey Powell, who's always been known as Poe. It was their brainchild. They, they had this idea for this misty valley they knew in the south of France. I think they were just trying to get away for a few days, and, and we were the mugs that paid for it. <laughs> but they came back with a good shot. And yeah, it was based, live dates is actually based, the shape of a date box, you know, that you have at Christmas. Right. That's what the front is. That shape is a date box. And it won an award, album design of the year or whatever it was. 
And it's it's lovely, you know, the design of it is beautiful. The opening song of that album, Live Dates, is The King Will Come. And there's also a version of that a few years back from the uh, the Live at the Citadel album. Mm. I assume there's a biblical element to it. Absolutely. And in fact, I have been reading the Bible around that time. And it, it's pretty much straight out of the Bible. Not It's not word for word, but, you know, it, it is an orthodox Christian belief. But having taken that concept of, of a return of the Savior, Jesus Christ, I kind of found that verse 1 uh, and the next bit, whether you call it a chorus or a middle eight, said it all. So I kind of got stuck. Then. <laughs> and um, I said to Steve, Steve Upton, I said, Steve, listen, if you've got any time on your hands, could you possibly come up with a second verse for me on this? Because... I've had several goes at it, and I'm really stumped. I've kind of said it all. I don't know where to go with it now. So he went away. You know, unlike my writing, where it's like, I've got to do it all in five minutes, it's straight, like almost like automatic writing with Steve. It's an intellectual exercise. It's completely different. He surrounds himself with books, and he's got his <laughs> cigar and a glass of wine, and he'll revel in it. For days on end. It's brilliant, brilliant to see him. And then he came back to me and said, Yeah, try this. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is brilliant. You know, where did you get this from? And and it's actually from a book called The Prophet by Kahil Gibran, or a name like that, which is a Muslim book. You know, it's about the Muslim prophet. So that song must be unique in that it's got two different religions. <laughs> concept contained in it and it's you know whenever we play it on stage we always start off trying to recreate the vibe of the middle east you know so hopefully someone may just come down and save us from the mess that we seem to be in
the sky will fall, the earth will break when judgment comes to claim its day. to close Martin but it's good to include some more of your uh, solo material um, you were discussing a track do you want to talk about that and we'll, we'll finish with that yeah I mean it was funny it was back in the 80s 90s after Wishbone Ash left me they put out a press release saying that I had left the band that's not true mm. the band left me because they were frustrated about the lack of commercial success which to me was mind boggling we just finished doing Just Testing, which was a wacky album, but I was, I had my paws all over it. I'd written a lot of the stuff and I was producing it. It's quite brave. But um, as I said to the band, we we peaked around 73, 74. Yeah. And there we were in 1980, being advanced a quarter of a million dollars to make an album. And the last gig that I played was in a Spanish ballroom. I think we got paid £8,000 in cash for that. So I said to them, you guys are talking about lack of success. What the mm. f*** are you talking about? I mean, that's ridiculous. And But what they were talking about was commercial success. Singles or something. Yeah, all, all these bands that used to be our support bands, you know, like Saxon and UFO, you know, had all become much bigger than we were because they'd had singles and mm. all the rest of it, and we were still wallowing away. And um, there was a lot of frustration there that I thought was very ill-advised. You know, there is a tendency in bands for it to be, instead of if you've got problems projecting it onto the world outside, it was projected in internally into the band, mm. which was stupid, really, because we, we were a good band. They wanted to bring a singer in, you know, which was a daft idea to me. You know, why? What, so that we've got a front man. Okay, well, so what's this front man going to do when we're performing the Argus album? <laughs> Is he going to sing it for me? Or stand on the side of the stage whilst we pay him to drink his beer, you know, while we do it, perform it? It's crazy. Accept what you are, you know. But anyway, I was ousted, furious. I mean, I had steam coming out of my ears, literally. And I was so angry with them. And um, I was supposed to get a settlement of money, which I never got. Uh, all kinds of things were promised. But um, they carried on going into expensive studios, running up bills. And, and I 
set about putting together a, a new band. I called it The Wolfgang, which was Mozart's Christian name. And that band was much more 1980s. We had a, a synth player and a guitar player who didn't play all that bluesy rock stuff. He, he was very different. And it was a good little band. We did quite a bit of recording. But when we went out to do some gigs, my agent, John Sherry, I mean, we played a bunch of gigs around London and some out in the sticks all over the place. Everybody said the same thing. We don't want to hear that new music. We want to hear Wishbone Ash. If it's you on the stage, we want to hear Wishbone Ash. Not that crap. <laughs> Which I felt was... You know, like I was really pissed off with Wishbone Ash. The last thing I want to do is be playing Wishbone Ash music. Mm. You know, so it was just me overreacting as well. So, you know, I had a conundrum on my hands where this band that I'd spent a lot of time and energy with, and and we all had, was, I was informed by my agent, going to go nowhere. It's not going to get off the ground. You know, the only thing that you can do is go out playing Wishbone Ash music. I'm like, fuck that. I'm not going to do that right now. I don't I don't feel like doing that. And I didn't. So, you know, I spent, put my energies into studio and recording and and worked with all kinds of different people and, uh, and really learned a lot about the art of recording. And then after a few years, we got back together. We did an album from Miles Copeland called Novo Calls, which was an instrumental album. Uh, and the band kind of reformed for a while. It was probably too early for the original band with Ted to get back together in the late 80s. But um, I had done all these recordings with, with my new band, The Wolfgang, which ended up going nowhere, as I say. And then I revisited that in the 90s because it seemed crazy for it to be sitting there on the shelf and um, I'd come across a, a new guitar player who was a Dutch guy called Robin Berlin. And he played some nice guitar on it. My little brother Glenn played on a track. It was years later I went back to it and knocked it into shape and put it out, you know, as Walking the Raper Band. The funniest thing was Walking the Raper Band was uh, an instrumental track that I'd made. And it had guitar going all the way through it. And this guy was helping me with it, a, a good friend of mine called Nick Lyon. You know, he was helping me to, to get the ideas for the album together and all the rest of it. He said, um, tell me the titles of all the songs so that, you know, we can decide what the album is going to be called. And we were going through it. And he said, what is Walking the Rape about? And I said, well, we can't use that. It's just an instrumental song. You know, it hasn't got any lyrics or anything. He said, yeah, but what is the rape about? I said, oh, it's the strip in Hamburg where we always play gigs, you know, and it's like that's where everyone goes. To, it's got the red light district there and, you know, it's... Made famous by the Beatles. Yeah, that's where the Beatles started and all the rest of it. And it's very rock and roll. It's in, it's in the port area where all, all the ships come in. And he's like, oh, I like that. It's great. He said, yeah, 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 I can see it. He said, you, you said it's the red light district. I said, yeah. He said, right, let's get you 
in a picture with a couple of hookers. I'm like, no, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, you know. <laughs> and, and I said, Nick, really, you, you're running away with yourself. You know, we can't use it as the title track of an album when it's a bloody instrumental. He said, well, tell you what, you go home and write the lyric for it. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so I did. I did what he's told me to do. I went home. I sat down with the track, took all the guitars that we'd recorded over it out, and it came to me in 10 minutes. I remembered a girl that I had met when we were playing the gig there. I can't remember the name of the gig. But I met this girl. She was working there. I met her, and we walked up the Raper Bam, and we walked back down again, and we were just chatting to each other, talking about the world and our lives and, you know, ba-bum, ba-bum. And by the time I got back down there, I felt like, you know, we were good friends already. Mm. It, we really hit it off. And she went off to do her job, and I went off to do mine. Never saw her again. But I just reflected on that and sang the lyric and told the story of it, of our meeting. And that's the song. It's although we did end up putting a couple of girls that look like hookers <laughs> on the cover, you know, it's, it's a long way from that, really. It, it really is. That was funny because that there was a girl I met at a, a party and um, I managed to get her number of a niece of ours. And I said, I need to speak to your friend. Um, I called her up. And I said to her, hi, this is Martin. We, we met at a party last weekend. Listen, I've got to shoot a picture where we need a couple of girls that look like hookers. And I thought of you. <laughs> and I thought she's either going to slam the phone down. Or, and she burst into laughter. And uh, she was, wasn't offended at all. So, yeah, she came out and did, did the shoot with us. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it was, it was Yenka was one of the girls. And Yvonne, and she, you know, the kit that she's wearing on the front, I mean, she rolled up in that kit. She looked absolutely brilliant. It's a very moody song, actually. It's not really even a rock song. It's, it's bizarre. Thank you so much. It's been great to speak to you. All right. Well, thank you so much for your patience, because I, I can, yeah, the hind legs off a donkey. Yeah. It makes it easier. So thank you. Yeah, lovely. Okay, Jason, nice one. All right, then. bye-bye. Cheers now. Bye now.
Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.